raw, uncut, and unapologetic. Welcome to Men Talking Mindfulness with your hosts John McCaskill and Will Schneider. Here we focus on helping men and those with men in their lives solve some of life's complex challenges through understanding the practices of mindfulness and how they can help. Each episode is in an environment free of judgment and criticism with a focus on authenticity and inner peace. Let's dig in. Origami yourself. The first step is acknowledging that we all need to change and grow. We all have the ability to get to a place of self-awareness and say, I don't like this part of myself and want to be better. This is a quote from Let Your Light Shine, How Mindfulness Can Empower Children and Rebuild Communities, authored by two of our guests today, brothers Ali and Otman Smith, and then Andreas Gonzalez, who will not be with us today, but two of the three, hey, we can't win them all, right? We've got two of the three. So happy new year, everyone, and welcome back to Men Talking Mindfulness. I'm John McCaskill, and each week, my co-host, Will Schneider, and I work to break down and demystify an aspect of mindfulness and make it meaningful to you. This week, we'll be speaking with Ali and Otman all about mindfulness in schools and how they've seen it help in inner city Baltimore, not only in the schools, but in the community. And we're super excited to speak with them. But first, want to jump into some announce- announcements. Will, over to you. <laughs> we got to get to this grounding practice quick, John. I know, man. Everything is testing people. our patience today. <laughs> <laughs> hey, it's great to be back, everybody. Well, Happy New Year. Uh, announcements. Hey, uh, get more mindful. You can join us on our mindfulness adventure retreat that's happening on May 18th to the 21st uh, this year. In, on the East Coast in upstate New York, uh, we're going to this beautiful Wom, uh, Wom Dharma Center in Claverack, New York. It's four days and three nights of working to rewrite your story so you can live a happier, healthier, and more meaningful life. And right now, we're running an early bird special. So if you sign up before January 19th, you'll receive $400, $400 off the full price. Uh, go for more details and book your spot now. We're actually already booking spots, John. It's great. So you can... Um, Get those details and book at mentalkingmindfulness.com uh, slash retreat. Once again, mentalkingmindfulness.com slash retreat. Uh, also, hey, join us on YouTube. Please subscribe. Uh, we actually just uh, found a new editor, John, so we're going to be posting more content over there, snippets from the show and other content as well. But you can um, you know, tag us on and follow us on YouTube at youtube.com slash at mentalkingmindfulness. Um, and I'm just going to tease this and we're going to dive in a little bit later. Um, we're going to do, um, 12, uh, new month resolutions or one different resolution every month. We're going to start this month with just hydration. We're going to talk about those details about how you can optimize your hydration, uh, in a little bit later on. And you can join us for that, uh, to optimize your health, optimize your mindfulness and just be more of a badass. Um, <laughs> so, uh, all right, John, um, let's, let's bring let's up our guest, shall we? All right. There's Ollie and there is Otman. And gents, so excited to have you here with us today. Very excited about your book and everything that the book covers. And I'm just going to jump into that bio and then we're going to get into that that first practice and get into that meat and potatoes of the show. So Ollie and Otman, Ollie and Otman Smith, they're brothers. Ollie and Otman are both co-founders along with uh, Andy Gonzalez, Andreas Gonzalez of the Holistic Life Foundation. Ollie... Well, was born and raised in Baltimore. They were both born and raised in Baltimore, a graduate of uh, Baltimore University of Maryland College Park. Uh, and so Ali received his BS in environmental science and policy 
and he is a pioneer in the fields of yoga and mindfulness in education, as well as trauma-informed yoga and mindfulness. Ottman, again, the co-founder of HLF and is a native of Baltimore and also attended the University of Maryland College Park, from which he graduated with a BA in criminology and criminal justice. Awesome. We're super excited. Again, those criminal justice uh, and uh, the, the environmental science and policy, we want to get into how that came to be HLF and what it is you guys are doing now. But before we do that, I'm going to turn it over to Will to lead that grounding practice because, again, this is the first show of the season. We're always shaking off the dust. We're a little nervous as we go live. So we're excited to have you guys, but I'll turn it back over to Will. All right. We're just going to do five breaths, everybody. That's how we start the show. And why five breaths? It can really make a huge difference how you're showing up, how you're feeling. Let go of your mind. Create more clarity. Create more confidence. Have you be more present. But let's go. So if you can close your eyes or you can do this while you're driving or cutting the grass or at the gym. We're just going to exhale out the mouth like you're blowing out a candle. Empty, empty all the way out. Good. Let's take a big inhale through the nose for four seconds. Three, two, one. There we go. And blow out that candle again. Slowly control. Let all the breath go out. Inhale again. Four. Exhale out easy. Feel your face relax, your shoulders relax, your face. Okay, take one, two, a few more. Inhale, four. Out. Last two, big breath in. Really try to fill from the bottom of your diaphragm. You talk about belly breath in the book, the middle, all the way to the top of the chest. And let that balloon go out nice and easy. Yeah, we'll do one more. Inhale big. Maybe a bigger balloon this time. Keep going. And let that go out. Good. Make a little micro movements and then open the eyes. And gentlemen, thank you so much for being here today. I uh, really appreciate you taking the time. Thanks, Thanks for having us. We're really us. excited yeah. about this. Yeah, awesome. definitely, man. We appreciate it. Yeah, yeah well, yeah, first question is is how one of you has hair and the other one doesn't, and you're both <laughs> brothers, is my first question. I'm just kidding. I'm sorry. <laughs> so he got the hair jeans and I didn't. Oh, you did? I got our dad's okay. hair jeans and he okay. got our mom's side of the family hair jeans. <laughs> and honestly, I can grow hair on the top. Ali grows hair on his face. So oh, there, there you go. Hair, you, know? you know, the funny thing is when I talk to my kids about taking care of the hair, I got two sons and I'm always like, yeah. Look, you guys could take care of your hair and have hair like your uncle, or you could not take care of your hair and have hair like your dad. And then they run to the bathroom and they start putting like stuff in their hair. I love it. I love it. We got the trash talking already. <laughs> uh, well, yeah. So, gents, I want to help to promote your book again. That's Let Your Light Shine: How Mindfulness Can Empower Children and Rebuild Communities. It's a great read. Very enlightening. Uh, Will and I were talking before you guys came on about how much we learned from from this. Even as mindfulness practitioners, we learned about mindfulness, but we also learned a lot more about it. Uh, about we also learned a lot about communities and specifically black communities. And uh, I mean, I, I went to school in Annapolis. You know, I don't know what is that thirty miles from Baltimore, and mm -hmm. 
it is a completely different world, right? Um, it, it may as well be on a different planet. From what I understand now from, from reading your guys' book and then also just recently listened to you guys on the 10% Happier uh, podcast with Dan Harris, I learned a ton about, uh, you know, stress uh, from poverty, uh, you know, multi-generational trauma, and we're going to get into all that. But I also was really fascinated in, in what you guys touched on um, in the desegregation and how you touched on how that actually hurt the black community, or at least in your opinion. And we're going to touch on that maybe later in the show. Um, but before we get into that, let's let's get into your backstory. Like, how did you guys get into what it is you guys do now? And how did you guys found the Holistic Life Foundation. What is it? What does it do? That type of thing. Let's start there. Uh, so I don't even think we had a choice. Like our dad was a coach and a hard ass. Like our dad was uh, one of the toughest people I've ever met in my entire life. And uh, he told us we were going to meditate. So we meditated. You know what <laughs> I mean? Like we didn't really have a choice. Um, our dad was, he was all about mental toughness. Like that was his whole thing. You had to be tougher than any situation uh, that anyone could put you in. Like, so um he was all about that. And I think a part of that was the meditation practice. Like um, our teacher would always say to us, our godfather was our teacher, one of our dad's best friends. And he would always say, either you kick your own ass on the inside or you get your ass kicked on the outside. I and that. I think that was a part of the meditation process. And, you know, and our dad was like, you know, he, he was he was all about it. Like he was in the Hatha because he had a prostate issue. Uh, and then when he got, you know, the finger, the part of the prostate yeah. exam, he went yeah. to his uh his best friend, he was like, yo, I don't want to do this again. And uh, he taught him a couple practices, didn't tell him it was yoga, um, you know, and he'd never had a prostate issue uh, for the rest of his life. He never had a prostate issue. So he was like he was sold. And, uh, you know, we didn't do yoga as kids, but we definitely were into meditation. Um, and then we went we grew up in a self-realization fellowship church, uh, autobiography of a yogi style. And um, it was uh, all in Kriya Yoga. So we meditated there. You know, and, and that was just a part of who we were. We grew up in a Quaker school uh, where there was meeting for worship. There was a pause before everything you did. So there's like all these things that were important. Um, and, you know, even our mom, our mom was was never really into the meditation practice, but she was into prayer. I mean, that, that's still her thing. Uh, but she was into the Ayurvedic cooking. We were vegan. Mm -hmm. Like we were definitely the only vegans in West Baltimore, North and Pulaski. Like there was no one else close. You know what I mean? So it was like very unique upbringing. And I think that was what planted the seeds for the Holistic Life Foundation. We got out of all that stuff as life went on, but got back into it as we were trying to figure out, I mean, what the hell we're we going to do with our lives. You know what I mean? We were get finishing up college. Our dad was pushing us to be entrepreneurs, and uh, but we didn't know what we were going to do. And, you know, I mean, like, the, you know, it was the whole like, hey, go graduate from college, um, get a job, get married, have some kids, retire and die. Right. Like there's got to be more to life than that. Like that's bullshit. Like somebody's feeding this <laughs> bullshit somewhere. Like that doesn't make sense. So it was like, you know, we started asking all these questions, reading all these books, and our godfather's just kind of sitting back smiling, like just waiting for us. You know what I mean? Like he had been trying to push yoga on us for a long, long time, but uh we just weren't ready. Uh, I know one of our favorite books, or what yeah, one of definitely one of our favorite books is probably sitting, it's actually sitting on the floor next to me right now. Um, the holy science he gave to me for my birthday and I wasn't ready. It was, it's, he wrote a note in it and uh, it, it sat, it actually balanced my PlayStation two uh, for a <laughs> long time because, you know, a broke college student. I had a lopsided desk. I mean, a lopsided bookshelf, with my PlayStation, and my TV on it. And uh, it just balanced it, make sure my discs didn't scratch up. And, you know, eventually, eventually I got it. But I mean, like he was there sitting, waiting for us. And like the practice just spoke to us. It was like, 
I think um, it, we. I don't think we could have learned it from anyone else other than him. He was um, just like a dad, tough ass dude, tough as nails. Um, he was like the witch doctor, a healer in his community where people got sick. They came to him. He would give them some herbal remedies, some juices to drink, like meditate, like all these things that were like from that where you were healing yourself and uh, some meditation, some breath work, some mantras, some mudras, all this stuff. And I think yeah. it was just like the way that he taught us was very real, very grounded, and it just spoke to us. So we just ran with it. And this Ali, is Will you're talking about, yeah? Yeah, there's a yeah, Will. Yeah. Ali oh, likes yeah. to call him the uh, Sam Jackson of uh, yoga teachers because he's a lot of MFs and trying to uh, give us some information. So that's why Ali said it spoke our language. So yeah, it definitely spoke our language. It'd be funny taking people over there and like we were like, you know, because we would talk about him and talk about all the spiritual stuff and we would take a friend or or somebody in our family, like just one of our buddies with us over there and they're looking at us because he's like, oh man, F this, MF that, and did it. But they're learning about the light inside themselves and the shine in the rest of the universe. Right. And they're like confused at first, but then they get it. They're like, oh, okay, he's he's speaking a language. Like he don't, you know, he was always about like um not being like all holier than now where you couldn't speak to people. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like people yeah. want a message they can understand in a way they can understand it and not like speaking from the mountaintop. You know what I mean? Like so it's I think it was a you good thing that that, that he yeah. was our he was our teacher like that. I don't think we'd have got it from anybody else. Yeah, and you guys talk about that very thing in the book, and and again with uh, Dan Harris is about meeting people where they're at, right? Like if you if you come at them from uh, a pedestal, most often they're not going to listen to what what you have to say, and and we'll touch on you know the changing of language even when as you guys approached uh, administrators within schools, you, you you had a whole yoga curriculum. And you presented it as a yoga curriculum, and then they were like, "Hey, you got to change all the yoga language in this to something else." And we'll touch on that uh, yeah. here in a second. But I'll I'll turn it over to Will. I know he's got some more questions too. Um, yeah, I mean, I I, I was really blown away by this book, and and part of it was really gut wrenching. Like you know, personally, I kind of grew up in you know, all white community. Um, you know, I had. Uh, um, you know, my parents, you know, I was able to go to school, you know, and we, we definitely had, came from humble, humble means. Um, but just kind of reading about the community and, uh, and, and where these kids come from and the trauma that these kids are experiencing and how that trauma translates into the classroom, into the neighborhood, into their lives, into the relationships and how that, you know, uh, continues into their, uh, you know, adult life. I'm, I'm so grateful you're doing this work, um, for these students and, um, you know, tell us a little bit about, um, you know, let's talk about like, you know, you tell us about the multi-generational trauma and the poverty related to stress and, and how they impact the kids, you know, in, into the community. Um, I think it'd be a good place to kind of tip off, if you will. Yeah, I mean, as far as, um, you know, like, honestly, in the book, we talk about um, how, you know, people talk about Maslow's hierarchy and, you know, that is what people need to feel safe. And our kids don't have any of that stuff. You know, they don't have, um, you know, um, shelter, safe shelter. They're sometimes uh, moving from house to house to house. They live in neighborhoods where, you know, people are sitting out on their porch, uh, you know, selling drugs and, you know, seeing people get shot or, you know, they're, de 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 they're dealing with a lot. So, you know, I remember when Ali and I first got in to the work, we thought we were dealing with like, you know, bad behavior kids and you know mm -hmm. that was never really the case we once we got a little older and started uh, hanging out with like you know like a 
Dr. Bessel van der Kolk or uh, Richie, Dr. Uh, Richie Davidson and, you know, other neuroscientists, we understood that there was like a trauma issue. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that makes makes kids not have access to certain aspects, you know, of their brain, their prefrontal lobe, executive function and stuff like that. So, you know, a lot of the issues that we saw coming from, you know, being uh, from underserved communities and dealing with like trauma firsthand, secondhand and even intergenerational, you know, their behavior problems are actually traumatic problems. And, you know, we knew that we like we work with some of the practice that we work with, how it helped us. It strengthened us mentally, physically, spiritually, emotionally. And, you know, it helped the practices help heal trauma, the trauma that's stored in the body, mm-hmm. the, you know, the trauma that makes you not be able to be present or have access to your prefrontal lobe. And, you know, we just started honestly teaching these people and di- different communities to help empower them to be able to, uh, you know, heal themselves from the inside out. But, you know, we're seeing that it works in Baltimore and, you know, we are duplicating this uh, around the nation and around the world now. Love it. Yeah, I know when you were talking about interge- intergenerational trauma, like, I, you know, like you see certain things and you feel certain things like from your parents, your grandparents. But I didn't think about we were um we do work up up, uh, up at Aquasa, a Mohawk reservation called Aquasasne. And uh, we were sitting in a presentation um, from Chief Cook. And one thing that she said that really hit home with me and I'll never forget is like, you know, I was talking about Dr. Besser Vandal Cook, you know, trauma stored in the body, like, you know, it happens, but then it's stored in your body. Like one thing she was saying that like women are born with all of the eggs that they're going to like, that they're going to have, like right. that they're going to like, you know, I mean, that are in their body. So like that one of those is going to turn, if they have kids is going to turn into their child. So like the things that they experience are going to happen to their, like they're stored in their body. So they're stored there. So like that energy stored in those kids, so the kids come out with that same energy or like, yeah. I think she was saying if they're pregnant with a girl, those those girl babies already have. So it's like not only does wow. it happen to them, it happens to their grandkids, too. So, like, yeah. it's real. Like, it happens. And it's just stuff that people have to um, that people have to deal with and people have to accept because there's definitely certain things that um, I know that I respond and react to certain things the same way that um, or we both do that, that our dad or our mom may have. But it, it's not an experience that we've had. It's just something mm-hmm. that that's kind of it. It's it's innocent. It's just it's innocent as a part of us. So I think um, everybody's got that healing to do, uh, mm-hmm. but but a lot of people ignore it, and just, you know, I mean, they, a lot of people ignore it and hide from it. I'll say. Right, and the you know the the other side. So you talked about multi generational trauma, the the poverty poverty related stress that you mentioned in the book, um, and something that I didn't really consider is is how. Yes, that causes problems potentially in the classroom and in the community, but also at the at like the cellular level, right? What that can do and increase your risk of um, disease or make you more prone to getting those particular diseases. I was really fascinated by that and and saddened by it as as well. Could you talk a little bit about that? Yes, like I don't know if you've ever... um... Like, I know the first time I was ever introduced to the um, adverse ch- childhood experiences and saw an ACEs test um, was at a training for actually for um, a funding foundation here in Baltimore, the Family League of Baltimore City. And, um, you know, like they start talking about ACEs scores and what it does. And like you were saying, like it makes you more prone to getting certain diseases or certain things happening to you or certain um, dying early, certain life outcomes where I'm like, you know, they and we, and we take the ACEs test and I'm like, you know, I'm looking at it. I'm like damn, I'm a lot more fucked up than I thought I was. You know what I mean? From life experiences. And I think a lot of people see that, like, if you actually go through an ACEs test, like, 
you'll see that the things that you've experienced aren't um are, are hurting you you know what i mean yeah. like and, and you and once you become aware of them then you can start to heal from them if you're not aware of them mm-hmm. you can't and i think here in baltimore i think one of the things i was most shocked about but that makes sense is that um baltimore has some of the highest aces scores at least from the chart that they showed in the entire mm-hmm. country um oh, they wow. would show like the united states would be here maryland would be around that level and baltimore would be way up here and if you and i mean and a lot of things are normalized in baltimore that aren't normal you know what I mean? Like when you when we go we, and I don't think we realize it until we started traveling other places and exploring the world and seeing like things that we thought like that a lot of people think are normal here and people kind of laugh off and joke about aren't really normal. Like it's yeah. not something that, that should really happen and it's not a way that people should have to live. But it's just a normal thing in Baltimore because of things that we're exposed to from a very early age. Traumatic. And sometimes we we as human beings, we we see somebody else's trauma and we're like, oh, well, my trauma isn't as bad as that. And so we think that we haven't been traumatized, but in actuality we have, and we can't um, minimize our own trauma because we all handle trauma differently. And sometimes, like you mentioned, those, those in inner city Baltimore, they may have been traumatized, but because it's normal, they don't think they have been. So the, the ACEs, uh, you know, test that you took, and being made aware of that, that's that's sad, but it's also very important that that's there. Um, so uh, I applaud, again, what you guys are doing uh, to make people aware of the trauma that they may be in a, have been exposed to, whether that's through the ACEs or through what it is you guys are doing or the ACEs test or what it is you guys are doing. But, um, yeah, there's, there's so much work that we all need to do for ourselves so that we can heal whether it's trauma from the battlefield, whether it's trauma from family, whether it's trauma from uh, sexual assault or anything else. I mean, there's just so much trauma out there, but we don't even realize it. Well, how does that, uh, so tell us about the kids, like, and, and, you know, your first initial teachings going in this school, working with the, like the worst of the worst kids. And, you know, how does that trauma manifesting in these children's lives and in the classroom? And then, you know, what were, you know, I love you talked about the mindfulness moment room and how that's really been helping tremendously to reduce the number of suspensions and detentions and expulsions. Um, so just let's just talk a little bit more about the trauma and the kids and, and how you've found this, use the practices of yoga and breath work and meditation in order to be, help the kids wake up, you know, to this trauma and realize that they don't necessarily have to go down that path every time that they have some sort of a reaction to whether it's something internal, external or you know, just the fact that you talk about them eating, uh, you know, just a shitty breakfast and, and how that has a, an incredible impact on how they're showing up in the classroom and how that can trigger, you know, these these, you know, ingrained states of trauma with that's within their DNA and in their mind. I think one of the first things I noticed um, and, and, you know, I think one of the things about us is like when we first started working with kids, we had never worked with kids before. So it was just like like we had a practice, um, we had a yoga practice, we had a meditation practice, breath work practice, but we had never worked with kids before. And I think one of the first things um, that I noticed was that kids have a, like the kids that have been traumatized have a lot of walls built up, um, like a, a, around connecting with other people, even connecting with themselves. Like it's just like they're um, they're protecting themselves. Um, there's a lot of fear, and it manifests in a lot of different ways. There's a lot of pain, and it manifests in a lot of different ways. And there's a lot of things that look like kids being like um, rude or obstinate that are just like survival mode. So like the kids are in survival mode all the time and they don't get a chance to actually be kids. Like, you know, like it's, it's not something they're choosing to do. 
it's like like Atman was talking earlier, like their brains are in survival mode too. So like the things, those higher functions, the brain aren't even accessible to them. So it's like they're, it looks like the kids are just behaving poorly and they're getting into fights and yeah. all these things are happening. But it's just because of the things that have gone on in their lives, like they don't really have a choice about that. It's just the way. That, and I think um, a lot of things help to break those things down. Um, you know, like making their body a safe space through the physical practice is definitely number one. And I think the most important thing was just that um, consistency and and love from from the three of us early on. Um, it, it helped them break down a lot of walls because it was like they had someone in their lives that cared about them, that loved them. And uh, and even um, I remember we when, we when we were doing a podcast a long, a long time ago, we had Dr. Bessel. We had Bessel on there and um, he was mentioning he was like the thing that you guys do the most to help people heal their trauma is is right in your face and we're like what is the breathing the movement like what are you talking about he's like no it's the love man like yeah. love can form can heal any form of trauma other than mm. like um blunt brain trauma you know what i mean like brain trauma right. but like any right. other form of trauma and love can heal and that's what you guys are doing uh very well like embodying it and loving yourselves loving the kids and and they see it and it helps them to start break down those walls and then they can start to heal themselves too and, and i know another thing that best used to talk to us about was uh you know, and it's, you know, part of neuroscience now is neuroplasticity and, you know, the right. ability for the brain to rewire itself. Yeah. You know, we heard a lot of uh, lectures where people were talking about this and, you know, theoretically. But I think the beauty of it is once we learned, you know, uh, what it was, we actually saw uh, it in action with our kids. You know what I mean? Like from kids that couldn't peacefully resolve conflicts because, you know, that's all they know. Their parents tell them, like, you better not come in here with a black eye. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So, you know they know one way to resolve conflicts but you know through one of our practices the uh, loving kindness practice we've seen kids that you know are uh quick to you know throw their hands and get into a fight um kind of change their behavior or rewire their brain to be able to peacefully resolve conflicts through a loving kindness practice that we do where you know if somebody comes into your mind or if somebody's even in front of you uh you know you um send those people love when they go into your mind you know what i mean and Mm-hmm. You don't let them kind of overwhelm you and ch- kind of like be, you know, dictating your pushing your buttons and, you know, being your puppet master, making you do whatever they want you to do and be aggressive back or, you know, whatever. Right. Uh, you know, they actually just the kids in our program just send those people love, forget about them and they can get back into that present moment. And, you know, to see kids kind of be like, you know, I ain't even got to worry about them or adults too. like all I do is send them love and keep it moving. You know what I mean? It's mm-hmm. definitely a way to rewire your brain. So you know, you are able to be, you know, the uh, master of your own universe instead of being, you know, a, a, a servant of your universe, you know? Right. Yeah, it's much better that. to be He-Man than Orko. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. I love it. Great reference. <laughs> uh, um, oh, shoot. I forgot where I was going to go. That was so great. <laughs> <laughs> I, I got something. So, well, one thing, it's what's we, we talk all, all the time in the show and we understand, you know, uh, through all of us, you know, just through practicing and, and studying mindfulness is the plastic, the, the, the fact that the brain, the brain is plastic, the plasticity of the brain. It can work either way. It can work against us or it could work for us. And one uh, term that I learned, you know, from reading your book is the allostatic load. Um, and, you know, I'm just going to read from your book quickly. It says allostatic load. And it's uh, literally the price you pay, uh, the, the price your physical self pays for your mental distress. Our brain, after all, are, uh, our brains, after all, are the key organ of stress. 
As the regions of the brains are exposed to chronic fear or worry, they remodel themselves, changing how they respond to future stress and anxiety. As we get older, this can manifest as cognitive impairment or, or chronic depression. Um, others might get hypertension or just you know, uh, turn into eating for comfort, uh, perhaps developing diabetes and um, and in diabetes in the process, you know, but, but then we can go the other way. I mean, so you're introducing practices to these kids and anyone that you work with. So you can begin to, you know, take that. You, you mentioned a great word earlier, um, you know, as far as the way that you guys are raised is taking that pause. And that's so much about like what these practices can do. It's just getting to know our breath and getting to know ourselves a little bit on, on just taking any kind of practice that's related to mindfulness, whether it's taking a breath, going for a walk or, you know, doing some meditation allows us to continually understand how important that pause is. So we can choose a different path, you know, uh, that's more healthy for us and our environment and our ambitions versus like, you know, putting ourselves into a situation that, you know, we might get hurt. We might end up in jail or detention or something like that. So, um, yeah, I just wanted to put that out there. So thank you, gentlemen. And John, what are you going to say? Yeah, so I, I did remember. I, I remember. I can't remember <laughs> if it was from Dan Harris's episode or from from the book uh, when you talk about. It may have been in both. Uh, your uncle Will, or, or it's actually your godfather Will, but uh, where you reference him, and I won't get political here, but he's watching the news and he's watching a particular political <laughs> uh, figure that he doesn't see eye to eye with, and you're like, how, how can you watch this stuff? And you're like, well, I'm I'm challenging my my loving kindness. I want to send this person who I don't see eye to eye with yeah. my loving kindness. And I just thought that was so great. Uh, so it's just not a, not a question, just a comment more more than anything about the loving kindness and how we can in fact send that love and kindness to uh, those that we love, those that we are neutral towards, and those that we may have challenges with. And it's just so powerful what that can do in your life and how you see other people. They're not just other objects in your life. They are, in fact, other people with their own hearts and minds and ambitions and ideals and values. And it's important to see people that way. Um, that said, I'll, I'll move on to the next line of questioning. I want to talk about the, the men and masculinity topic. Uh, that is something that is so core to our show. You know, we, we talk about masculinity. We, we've had uh, f folks on to talk about uh, toxic masculinity, quote unquote, or uh, reinventing masculinity. And I love how you said uh, there's nothing wrong with masculine energy, inherently wrong with masculine energy, but there is a danger in a world ruled by masculine energy with no space for feminine energy or vice versa. And then we go into talking about how you learn to be a man from Smith, your father, and you learn how to be a gentleman from your mom. Now, in that same chapter, you talk about what happens when there is no positive role model, no positive male role model for young men in in the inner city. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, so I feel like um, that. So, like, I remember when our parents were getting divorced. And um, I guess I was probably in like the fourth going into fifth grade. Oppen was in like second going into third. And our dad would like have these long conversations with us about, you know I mean, like most of the time, like the mom gets custody of the kid and, and things just kind of move from there. But he fought hard for joint custody. Um, and we we're trying to figure out like, like why our mom's not going to like, what are you, like, why are you doing it? He's like, cause your mom can't, your mom can't teach you how to be a man. You know what I mean? Like, and he, he was so adamant about it. And it's not something I got as a kid. 
But um, I think it's something that like, like, again, our mom taught us to be gentlemen. Our mom taught us to be compassionate, caring individuals. But our dad taught us how to be men in the world and not like that toxic masculinity, man. But like or, you know, what I mean, but like a real man in the world, like uh, like just and and I think I don't that's something we couldn't have. And our mom is amazing, but that's not something that we could have learned from her. And I think a lot of people, um, a lot of a lot of the kids we deal with, a lot of people that we know have a really negative relationship with the women in their lives because like they don't have like most of the women in their lives, the people that are disciplining them, like people, the teachers, the principal, their mom, their grandmother. So they start to get like this really kind of frictional relationship with with the women in their lives that are constantly disciplining them and they have no one to show them how to be a man. So it's like, you know, if you if you go to other outlets, it might look like anger. It might look like aggression. It might look like all these things that aren't really what being a man is about. Like, I mean, I, th- I think there's just a lot, a lot to unwrap there where it's like, you do need men in your life that are going to show you how to be a man. You do need women. And there has to be space for both energies. I think that's a big thing with yoga is like, we do have masculine and feminine energy inside of us. And you're, and you're off if you're all one way or all the other way, there's mm-hmm. got to be a balance with it. But I think that plays out in real life. You have to be, see someone putting it into action for you to know how to use it in the right way. Yeah, I, I completely agree. And it's, uh, you know, we need to, you know, we want to be and hang out and just as a young man or a young or a boy, you know, someone that is kind of like us, you know, and, and, and a woman is not necessarily like us. And uh, it's important to have those role models. You, I love, um, well, tell us about, you know, that you mentioned in, in the chapter in one block radius, which, blew my mind um as far as like how that plays because as a kid like i was going miles away from the house on my bike and hiking you know hiking and and just having fun all over the neighborhood and and not fearing you know just going one block away from my house and you and you say they uh they they had never transitioned from the immature masculine of youth to the wiser masculinity of adulthood without transition and uh, without tradition and ritual to guide her, that grandmother has no idea how to steer her grandson towards a symbolic passage into maturity. This lack of ritual has led to a crisis in masculinity in all parts of the world uh, that don't practice it, Baltimore included. So what does a healthy evolution from adolescence to manhood like look like, if you will? What have you seen you know, from, uh, from the work you've been doing with so many different kids? I know one thing that, that 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 just popped up as you were saying that is I think um, a lot of a lot of um, cultures, a lot of communities don't have respect for their elders like they should, and I think that's where you learn those things. Is like uh, I know I know one of the the things when we the first time we went up to um, to Aquasazne. I mean, like we we went up there and we taught in the schools, but like the first time we actually spent time in the community, the first thing that we noticed was how much they cherished their elders. Like that was like their number one priority. Like even when COVID hit. Um, I remember COVID hit, there was a really hot summer and like all these things were going on. And their first thing was, how do we take care of our elders? So it was like they were passing out air conditioners in the um, like they had this old supermarket that was empty and they had air conditioners that, that people would come by and get. If you didn't have anybody to help you put in your car, they help you put in your car. If you didn't have anybody to help you install it, they would help you install it. Like COVID, they shut everything down because they heard it was attacking old people. So, mm-hmm. boom, we're closing this off. Like you have to quarantine for a week before you get here. You got to like all these steps to get onto the reservation. And I think that's what's missing. I know in, in a lot of, particularly in Baltimore and a lot of urban communities, such an antagonistic relationship between 
the the elders and the youth where it's just like the and it's and it's coming from both sides i'm not gonna say it's from one side it's like the elders are like oh well why are you all doing this da, 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 da. like you all are living wrong you're doing this wrong and the youth like well what do you know you're not you're still in the hood you know what i mean just like so it's like going back and forth and there's no there's no cohesion there's no unity there's no love there's no family there's no um you know respecting the youth for the energy and the different vibration that they're on there and there's no respecting the elders for their experience and um and their wisdom so i think that's where the disconnect is like there's no it, it's not there like it's, it's like there's it's totally antagonistic and not to uplift the older people and the younger people at the same time well that i think that leads us also to that in the desegregation that john had talked about and the kind of the, the breaking apart of the neighborhood and the you know, the lack of having, you know, elders like sitting on the porch and kind of watching a neighborhood that you kind of talk so beautifully out in the book. Like, um, you know, maybe we can just kind of the weak dive ties into network. that. Yeah, the weak, the, ties, the weak ties network in the book right. and how powerful that to, is. I'm going to have to make some technical changes or guys just so you know, but uh, I'm going to lose <laughs> my battery, but keep going. Keep going. All, All right. right. Yeah. So, yeah, if you guys could talk about, you know, the one in the book you mentioned again, how you guys feel and, and you've made some very strong points as to why desegregation uh, actually hurt the black community and then tie that to the weak ties network that you reference in the book about how important that weak ties network is and how it's kind of gone by the wayside, not just with desegregation, but also with uh, the introduction of crack, the, the introduction of technology, the, the loss of connection to our communities, those types of things. If you guys could talk to that. I mean, as far as the uh, desegregation thing, you know, I know everybody, you know, there are some, you know, positive, um, you know, points to, you know, the desegregation. But, you know, from a uh, African-American perspective, I mean, before desegregation, you know, um, black folks were confined to a certain neighborhood, spend money in their own businesses. And, you know, just like with, you know, most other um I guess races, their money kind of goes through their community a couple of times before it goes out. And that's how it used to be in before uh, desegregation, where, you know, um, people, business owners would help support, you know, different causes that needed to be um, supported in their community to support, uh, you know, their citizens there. Um, and, you know, um, it's really one of those things that once desegregation hit uh, and, you know, the schools were um you know stellar uh just because the teachers actually came from the neighborhoods and you know it, it wasn't a you know you didn't have to take cultural uh training and you know be mm -hmm. trauma informed because you were from those communities so you knew how right. to you know not only deal with uh teaching the lessons but actually deal with the behavior because you know where these people are coming from so it was like you know people were uh educating policing uh, and investing, you know, in their own community. So, you know, that's why, you know, things were, it wasn't as much violence and as much people having to just survive. It was, you know, it was a community. Right. Um, and, you know, when uh, uh, desegregation came out, it kind of like took all of the economy out of the black communities, took those teachers that uh, understood where these kids were coming from to be able to relate to them and not label kids a bad kid. You know, Johnny is coming from a home where, you know, the father just left and, you know, might be going through certain issues. You would have a little bit more patience with them. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, it, it kind of hurt uh, the, uh, you know, the height of black communities when, you know, before where we like, you know, we were investing in ourselves. 
And then, you know, the funding, the education, the policing, everything kind of changed with, you know, uh, desegregation where, you know, a whole bunch of resources were taken out uh, of the community. And, you know, now it's like I said, instead of, you know, a community thriving, they're just surviving, you know. Right. Um, Mm -hmm. And it's it's, it's, it's pretty hard. Yeah. And in the weak ties thing, I think it was something that um, I think it's one of the reasons that Oppen and I are able are are doing so well in life right now. Um, I know Mm -hmm. we had awesome parents, but also our family and our neighborhood um, are a huge part of who we are today. And I think, uh, like you were saying, when crack hit, like that whole that that was that was gone. Like it decimated families, infrastructure, community supports. Like we had a family in our neighborhood. We moved back to our neighborhood, and there was no like that that right. wasn't there, and that wasn't a thing anymore. Like we, and and I think that's a lot of the the work. Um, why we do a lot of the work with the Holistic Life Foundation, we did early on. Uh, now it's I feel like it's scaled up. Uh, so it's it's um it's about helping as many people, but I think it was more personal when it was just us living in our neighborhood doing the work. And it was about building those weak ties again in our neighborhood um, with the kids that were there that didn't have the supports that we had growing up uh, to try to help them excel in their lives and and just achieve on a, on a, on a really big scale. So um, I think, um, yeah, yeah. Crack hurt. I mean, cause you know, like when we grew up, when I grew up in my, when we grew up in our neighborhood, everybody owned their homes and I could name everybody on our block, the blocks around us. Like I knew everybody, and now there were, and when we, and we're getting back, it was like very few homeowners, mostly renters, a lot of section eight people moving in and out and in and out and in and out. So you never really got right. a chance to know your neighbors and, and they felt like, you know I mean, I could get disciplined by my neighbors when I was a kid. You know what I mean? It didn't have to be just my parents. Like right. it could be someone else or right. my parents could discipline somebody else's kids. So it was just like all these things were ripped away with the crack epidemic and they're, and they're. I mean, and now, you know, a lot of those neighborhoods are just getting gentrified. So it's not even given a chance. It's not even really being given a chance to heal itself. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And you talked about, you know, disciplining other kids, but you also in the book talk about supporting other kids. Right. If if both parents are working, maybe the kids can go to their neighbor's house to get a plate of dinner. Uh, But now now that's not the case, you know, or at least most of the time it's not the case. It's a it's pretty powerful uh, argument for how um, the crack epidemic really changed Baltimore and a lot of cities and it also uh, for the, for the importance of the weak ties um, coming back to the desegregation piece as a white man reading your book you get you have a chapter where there's there's a list on on what white people can do to help and mm. and not only on what white people can do to help but on understanding and acknowledging white privilege um, can you tell us why it is so important to not only understand it, but uh, to acknowledge it. And then what we as white people can do to help with your program or others like it. I, I mean, I think in America, white privilege is a superpower. You know what I mean? Like if you're really, really looking at it, like just um, there's certain things that, that would happen. Like, so my dad, our dad worked at um, Southern high school. It was a very, um, it was like, working class white people, working class black people at his school. So like he would, and he would point things out to us very early on. Like um, it was kids from like Cherry Hill in East Baltimore. Uh, Those are the black kids that were there. And then the white kids from South Baltimore that were there. And he would be like, every time someone had me, like I said, he pointed out to us. I'm like, yeah, this weekend, this kid and that kid from South Baltimore, the white kids, they got arrested for stealing a car. You know what happened to them? Like, nah, what happened? The, The police officer took them to their house, dropped them off and told them not to do it again. 
this kid and this kid stole a car. You know what happened to them? They got beat up and they got arrested. Like, so just very early on, just showing things that happen. I mean, even if you look at a lot of things that happen in, to people in this country, like there's two certain, there's two standards of what can happen and what can't happen. Like um, opportunities that some people have that other people don't. And I think if people understand that white privilege is a real thing in this country, they can use it to their advantage to help other people and use it to help. I mean, like, so, I mean, you could be unaware of it and think everything like, oh, we're all on a level playing field. Like, that's not really true if you really look at what's going on in this country and what has been going on in this country. So I think if you look at it from a place of like, hey, I'm at a place of advantage because of the color of my skin and this person is at a place of disadvantage because of the color of their skin, we can we can kind of level the playing field a little and I can use my white privilege to the advantage of the other people around me and lift everybody up instead of just being like, well, fuck it. You know what I mean? This is helping me. I'm yeah. just going to roll with it. I'm just too bad for them. Yeah. 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 No, it's very important. Uh, and, and I, I loved, I loved the, the list and how you explained, you know, as if we're talking to, if we like, if Will and I come into a classroom and we're talking to a, a group of black kids, we most yeah, likely yeah. don't have the, the most, uh, relevant information. We d- certainly don't understand the culture uh, to a point that we can um, potentially lift them up alone. And a lot of the time we, we, uh, and we being just white people as, as a whole, um, those who may be certainly uh, affluent can come in with that hero's mentality, right? Oh, yeah. We talk about that in the book too and ha- how not to do that. And then the last thing I want to talk about in, in that list is how a lot of the time we we commit and and then don't show up like we we commit to showing up uh you know four times a month and then don't show up uh where it's where you guys mentioned hey it's actually better to show up one time a month or rather commit to one time a month and actually show up than commit to four times a month and show up twice because you're letting those people down 50 percent of the time you're letting your students down the the ones that you're helping out 50% 50% of the time and they've been let down all their lives and now they just start to get jaded. They get jaded about the program. They get jaded about the people that are teaching them how important it is to actually commit and stick to your commitments. Uh, so thank you for, for writing that into the book. I mean, I think that um, <clears throat> one of the things that we've seen with being committed to, you know, a group of kids that may not have had any, a lot of those weak ties is you know that they achieve on a lot higher level um you know we create opportunities for them and um they you know like ali was saying like the 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 weak ties really um enhance you know what your scope of life uh can really be just because of the opportunities that you create and you know i think that a lot of our kids uh do the same thing like they they see a lot of kids that don't have uh any support and you know one thing i'm sorry i'm just going back for a second yeah no, good. these good. these weak ties and the commitment that you show you know it um kids don't really aren't really accountable to you know that many people that's why they don't achieve at a high level and one thing mm-hmm. that we've seen is that you know when we were committed to our first group and the second group of kids or when we were doing direct services you know they achieved at a high level because you know they did feel like they didn't want to let uh, somebody down who's been consistent in their lives. Yeah. And yeah. we've seen that ripple effect going out in all of our different programs that, you know, if people are committed, you'll uh, t- totally touch and impact these kids' lives and have them, you know, accountable to somebody so they want to achieve. So, you know, that's one of the beauties that we've seen. 
Yeah, we had students that would be like, they would show their parents their report card before they would show us their report card. <laughs> like they would like go home, yeah. they would show their parents and be like, like well, where's your report card? I'm not well, gonna get my ass yet. kicked that bad, but then you yeah. guys will kick their ass. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like we would we would check them and keep them in line. Like and they yeah. were like they would rather huge... go home and show somebody that didn't really give a fuck than show yeah. us who yeah. really did give a fuck and get in them like you are smarter than this. Like we're here to support you. Like how come every day you come to after school program, you say you don't have no homework and you fail in this class? Like, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So like they would hide their grades from us for as long as possible until we would go like take them to the office or talk to their parents about showing us the report card. And then they'd be like, all right, fine. Here you go. And so like, cause they, we held them accountable for everything that they did. Right. Right. Yep. And you, and you, and they had your uh, respect, you know, and, uh, which, which makes a huge difference in any community, any relationship. Well, let's keep talking about the kids. Like talk about some other ways that you, um, you know, empower, empower the kids. And that's really like your mission is not to save them, but to empower them to, to make different choices and to really understand the incredible p- potential that they have and go out to go, get, you know, go out, go after what they want. I know uh, one way that we empower uh, our students is with our reciprocal teaching model. Just like our teacher, you know, when we showed up the first day to learn some yoga, he's like, man, I ain't training no devotees. I'm teaching teachers. So, you know, that's (laughs) the same attitude that we have Mm -hmm. because, you know, his whole thing is like you don't want to be relied on anyone. You know, you want to be your source of information practice Mm -hmm. uh, and, you know, be able to take that practice off the mat and actually in your life. And, you know, that's the same mentality that we have is that whole reciprocal teaching model where we teach kids not only how to do the practices, what the benefits are and how to practically apply it into your life. Like, you know, if somebody has just stressed you out, uh, do this breathing practice and, you know, it could push pause on your mind and help you get back to that present moment. Um, You know, so, you know, teaching them how to actually take these practices into their life. um, And, you know, that way that, you know, in life, there are highs and lows, you know what I mean? And when you are on that low trajectory, you know, a practice, they can kind of help you get back to equilibrium and if not going back a little bit higher. Uh, so, you know, I think that's one of the way that, you know, we empower the students is t- making them teachers. Nice. Yeah, in other ways we get them to connect to themselves. I feel like kids are so disconnected from everything except for, I guess, except for the fucking internet. You know what I mean? They're disconnected from everything. You know what I mean? Like their phone, their, um, their iPad, like they're, they're all about it. And um, they're like, so, you know, like we want them to connect to themselves and, and, you know, I mean, they're, they're, they're not connected to what's going on inside, like their thoughts, their emotions, um, like that, like to let your light shine, like that universal spark within them, like they're, they're disconnected from all this stuff. And I think one of the, the greatest tools we give them is to connect to themselves because mm-hmm. once they connect to themselves, then they can start to connect and care about something bigger. Like you can't, like, I can't ask you to care about anyone else or love anyone else or have compassion or empathy, care about, a person, the environment, your neighborhood, whatever, if you don't love yourself first and you don't, you can't love yourself if you don't, if you don't know yourself. I think it's right. a lot about these, this inner work and these inner practices is getting to know yourself and connect to yourself. Cause that once you see that, then you start to see like that light in you and everyone yeah. and everything else around you. And then you can start to like function in a different way instead of just being like, you know what I mean? Like you were talking about that one block radius earlier. Like if, if I'm disconnected from, from myself, and I think the only things that are possible for me are in the tangible neighborhood around me. And that's it. That's a pretty fucking dismal existence. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. That's hopeless. Like mm-hmm. I wouldn't be, I wouldn't, I would be angry too. You know what I mean? So it's like, if you can teach them how to connect to themselves, then it's like, 
all right, well, boom, I'm, I'm like, wow, there's this whole universe inside of me and there's this whole something, there's something bigger outside of me than just this one square block. Like I need to start exploring and connecting to all that too. So I think that like that inner resource, like showing them that they are, there's something inside of them that's bigger than just their physical body and their physical neighborhood and connecting that and loving that and then letting it ripple out from there. You, you know, in, in that same line, um, you talked about how we are basically like a, like a spool of thread. If, if I remember the analogy correctly, it was like a spool of thread and we are that center, the core of that spool of thread, that the true selves and all our bad habits and everything else are what are wound around that spool of thread. And as we stop our bad habits or make efforts to stop our bad habits, we're unwinding that spool of thread and finally getting to that inner core. Um, what practices would you recommend someone start with if they are wanting to start a, a practice of their own and then specifically if they're wanting to get to know themselves? I'd say, I mean, easy one, because, you know, a lot, a lot, a lot of people get a fear, get, um, they stay away from yoga because they, they, they're not flexible. They can't twist themselves up into a pretzel. And that's what they think yoga is, but it's, it's so much more than that. And uh, I think that was one of the things I loved about our teacher was that, um, like uncle will always talk to us about all the different forms of yoga. And, you know, your mat has very little to do with your practice. It's like how you're spending your time off your mat is where your te- your practice gets tested. Uh, so for me, I'd say Janana yoga, um, which is like the yoga of knowledge, the yoga, it's pretty much the yoga of your thoughts. Cause most mm-hmm. of the time, um, like when, when we let our minds, most of the time, we're not even aware of our thoughts and like we're, our, our minds are running all day long and it's like physically exhausting how much mental energy we burn off. And then if you let your mind go, it always ends up in a negative place unless you actually put some effort into putting it into a positive place. Right. And then we have like that, um, that uh, negative self-talk and that inner critic that's constantly telling us that we're not worthy of this. We're not worthy of that. Someone will do something and then we're constantly thinking about how you should whip their ass or how you should do this to them or do that to them. It's so like all this stuff is going on in our mind. And Janana yoga is all, is all about like watching your thoughts. You know what I mean? Like you, you're actually paying attention to what's going on up here. And then you actually look at where, like what the source of that, like you do some reflection on it. Like you see, well, where's the source of this thought coming from? Like, why, why is this, why is this thought coming into my mind? And then the third part is turn it into something positive. You know what I mean? So like, if you're constantly telling yourself, no, I'm not worthy of, this thing in my life like well why am i telling myself that i'm not worthy of this thing in my life when it is possible for me and like then you switch it to like well i am worthy of this and not only am i worthy of it but it's attracting to me right now but i think that's a good place to start because our mind kicks our ass like it can be like our best friend or our worst enemy and for most of us it's our worst enemy and i'm aware of the practice you know what i mean i'm aware of janana yoga and it's Mm -hmm. still my worst enemy sometimes you know what i mean so it's not like once you learn the practice it's just going to be like poof it's magic and then all of a sudden You know what I mean? You got constantly, constantly got to do the work. That's what our teacher would talk about. It's like you're like you are like you're not. It's never going to be over. You know what I mean? Like we're human beings. Like that's what human beings do. That's the mind makes thoughts. The mind makes shitty thoughts. Like you know, Mm -hmm. like that's part of it. So like you got to be aware of it. and You got to constantly be vigilant and put your your practice to the test and constantly trying to be push yourself in the in that right direction. And, and like you were saying, uh, you were talking about like habit patterns or sense scares, you know, going along with Ali's theme of the, uh, thoughts. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, they say like you were saying, like, you know, I, we're like the inner part of the spool and, mm-hmm. you know, habit patterns are, are, are like, you know, the the string wrapping around. And the more you do habit yeah. patterns, certain habits, you know, they 
become tighter and tighter, tighter on your true self. And, you know, they say a, a good practice to do to kind of like unravel or loosen up that thread is, you know, try to catch uh, your thoughts at, at a thought construct level. Like when, if you're about to do a behavior that, you know, is uh, not healthy for you, like maybe smoking cigarettes, you know, you're just used to, you have that habit of smoking a cigarette every single day and you know, it's not good for your respiratory system. So, you know, when you think in your mind uh, that you're about to go grab a cigarette, you know, insert a, a positive thought or a positive behavior. And, you know, the more that, you know, you have that thought, catch it at the thought construct level and then turn it back into, you know, your, you know, positive behavior, or positive thought, that um, habit pattern of smoking a cigarette will fall off like a scab and you will form a new habit pattern. And that will be what's tightening up and, you know, creating the habit in your life. So, you nice. know, catching thoughts that, you know, lead you down a, a bad path at the thought construct level. And once again, either replacing it with a positive action or a positive thought, positive memory, you know, that's, you know, a great way to kind of break bad habits. And that's something like Ali was saying, our teacher was always like, man, it's, it's great if do, you do these practices on the mat or, you know, for like a half an hour, hour, but there's still 23 hours in the day or 20, mm -hmm. yeah, 23 more hours in the day. What are you going to do? You're going to be an asshole. Yeah. So it's really about figuring out how to take the practices that you practice on your mat into your life and practically apply them. And another simple one, like you, you were talking about this earlier when you're talking about Uncle Will watching the news and practicing like the love and kindness, like yeah. rock to yoga is what it is. You know what I mean? Like, like he would always like he would say it was the hardest and the easiest form of yoga to practice because it's all about like, like you don't you don't I don't have to bend up in a pretzel. I don't have to do no crazy breathing. I don't even have to meditate. All I have to do is like see the light in everyone else and everything else. Yeah, you know what I mean? Yeah. Which is easy saying it's easy to say, but to actually do is right. difficult as hell. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, cause yeah. there are, I mean, like just like I'm an asshole in someone's story. There's several, there are people who are assholes in my story. You know what I mean? Where, where mm -hmm. I, it's hard for me to see the light in them, but that's what the practice is all about. Cause you know what I mean? Like spiritually, we're all, we're all the same. We come from the same source, the same light shines in all of us. But, um, that bhakti yoga is a great way to start because it, it frees you up from so much, like so much energetically. Cause you know, like whatever you send out there, it's coming back to you even stronger. Right. So like if you're sending yeah. out that negative energy, that negative vibe to people or the situations, like it's coming right back to you. So yeah. like, if you can stop it and see the light in that person and it's not, and, and you know, he, he would never teach like, you're not walking around like a sucker. You know what I mean? Like we're not <laughs> telling you to do that, but at the same right. time, like, why waste all that? Like, I mean, and a great part about bhakti yoga is those people who are taking advantage over you and getting over on you. Love them in a distance. Keep them out of your life. Like, you put up that boundary. Keep them yeah. the fuck away from you. And you just, great every time point. they pop up in your mind, boom, you see their light. You see their light. You see their light. Yeah. And you don't have to yeah. worry. Like, they're gone. They don't even really exist to you. Like, their spirit exists to you. Like, you don't even have to, like, they're not in a space where they can drag you down or do something take negative to you or take advantage of you because you can just see their light. And that's, and, but the key to that is you got to see light in yourself first. I was you just going to say that. Absolutely. Before yeah. you can see it in anybody else. Cause like yeah. he would always, like, that's another thing he would always say is like, you got to see and feel and experience that light for yourself before you can see it in anyone else and feel it in anyone else. Cause you got to experience, you can't think about it. It's not something in the mind. It's something you have to feel and experience. And something and you know, have to practice. Yeah. Go ahead. Hell yeah. Hey. yeah. And I know Ali was talking about, you know, bhakti yoga. You know, I used to be a real hothead, you know, like the <laughs> smallest things would have made me just react. And, you know, I know that with bhakti yoga, those same people that, you know, might have 
push my buttons in the past, you know, the whole the, one of the main concepts of bhakti yoga is respect. And that's like, you know, seeing like Ali said, you got to see your light in yourself first. Then you look at somebody else and you see their physical um, appearance or, you know, their, and, and you their body and, you know, all that type of stuff. And that's what spec is. But then re is like again. So it's like, look again and you look a little deeper mm-hmm. and that same light that you've experienced in your practice, you know, you can actually see that look deeper, look past that physical and see that light within that person also. And it kind of helps helps you respond to things and not really be like, man, motherfucker, get out my feet. You know, like <laughs> you, you, you will be able to take that pause and respond. And, you know, yeah. just like it's not worth it. You know, I'll see that light, yeah. just, you know, walk remove myself from the situation you know we're not like ali said we ain't telling nobody to be suckers you might have to defend yourself no, and you know never, stuff like that sure. but you know you can try to see that light and walk away from situations and you know it usually works um you know and that's true you know the beauty of the practice it helps you kind of like bring your stress level down because like stress kills people man and like yeah, you know if you try to have ba- a battle with every single thing in life that pisses you off that's detrimental to your health so yeah. this practice of bhakti yoga will help you kind of transmute yeah. that anger and, you know, focus on see the light in that person, which will also make you tap into your light, which, you know, if you have a practice, you'll know how peaceful and loving and grounding uh, the light is within yourself, you know? Yeah. Namaste, right? That's where it comes from. All day. Right? Yeah. It's like not the, that light in me honors the light in you and we share the same light. You know, nama means name, uh, uh, stay means... Uh, um, yeah, I mean, so yeah, I got that wrong. But uh, uh, um, what, I got to you know, what? I, go ahead, John. I want to ask, a, you know, we're coming up on, you know, about 15 minutes left on the show, but I got a question as a father. So, you know, I, I'm most likely not going to get into schools to teach in, in front of uh, young uh, men and women uh, very often. The opportunity is just probably not going to present itself. But the opportunity pre- presents itself every day to, be a father and teach this to my children. And Ali, I know you mentioned children before, Atman, I'm not sure if, if you have kids, but uh, I would love to ask a question to you guys. How do you bring this into your homes and teach your children, uh, if you know if you are? And and how do, how's it received? Uh, so I, I remember when my first, my oldest was born, and everybody's asking, well, when are you going to teach him yoga? When are you going to teach him how to meditate? When are you going to teach him? So I was like, well, when he starts asking the right questions, you know what I mean? I'm like, I'm not going to force it on him. So then once he started asking about my practice was when he started, you know what I mean? And it was just like, a, um, you know, um, I wanted to interest. So like I, when we were kids, we were a part of our dad's practice and we didn't really have our own practice. You know what I mean? It was like we meditated with him and mm-hmm. and 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 I don't and I think it was just that's just the way it was. Like we meditated at Sunday school. We meditated with our dad. And then when our dad stopped meditating, we stopped meditating. So it was like trying to creatively figure out a way to make my my oldest own the practice. And, um, you know, so it was just like consistently we'd sit down with like, you know, try different times a day. We found a time of day that worked um, with him. And, uh, you know, so then we started practicing together and uh, making it fun and having discussions. You know what I mean? Before we would meditate, like we would talk about how spirituality relates into his life. Like, you know what I mean? And like and it was just me asking questions and him answering like it was like. And if he had a question for me, we would t- we would talk for a little while and then we'd meditate. Now would be the end of it. It was it was a really fun, like bonding experience for us. So I think that like it was never a punishment. You know what I mean? Like, where sure. like you were like you got in trouble at school today. Go breathe and go meditate and then come on and do your homework. It was like something that was oh, yeah, fun. Knock by real quick for like showing up. Like, I mean, like that's not that'll never work. And then um, yeah. I think another thing was 
like having him having him do it consistently and then just backing off. It's like we did it every every night for a really long time, and then I just stopped. And I was like, well, at some point it's gonna hit him, and he's. So it was like I remember it was like mm-hmm. uh, Mr. Rookwood. I guess Mr. Rookwood was third. I guess it was his third grade teacher. Where he was like, Dad, I need to start meditating again. I'm like, oh, really? Why do you need to start meditating again? He started talking about things that were going wow. on and like how he felt. And he was like, all right, well, cool. Let's start back up again. So, you know what I mean? Like, he knows he has his own practice. Like, he has his mala that he does. Like, I see him doing job, like doing mantras with. Like, he wears it around the house and he'll just, he knows he's charging to energy. And my youngest, um, you know, like when he was ready, he was, it, it, I think my, my oldest was like around three ish. And my, and my youngest was probably around five just because they're different in personality. And like what they were interested in, and then he started meditating with us too. But it's always, it's always like I, we always make it fun. Like, and yeah. I make them take ownership of it. Like they got what the practice is. And then like, like my practice looks different than theirs because of what's going on in their lives. So I think it's just like the fun aspect, them them taking ownership of it and letting them guide where the practice needs to be. And um, you know, and just throwing in something like you know, like like throwing some mantras and like there's tons of there's mantras in the book. And like there's like there's even there's even a part in there where my son says like you know if like um if if life was a video game mantra would be the cheat codes you know what I mean so it's like <laughs> oh, he's like holy yeah, shit like it. I can use this for all. Yeah. so it's like give them stuff that can they can practically use and and then make it really fun and and they'll they'll stick with it up up down down B A start or whatever it was yeah right right, right. Contra. <laughs> speaking of uh, why don't we close on this speaking of like being putting the practice in into the schools like. Why don't we talk about the mindfulness moment room um, and and what that looks like and and the results of just having that mindfulness moment room in a school, how that's changing um, the numbers of suspensions and stuff like that and problem behaviors for the kids. I think it's the, also very helpful for like, you know, the adults to hear this too, because like we can take that pause. We can take a moment and just, but go ahead, please tell us about uh, where that came from and, and, and what that looks like. I mean, where it came from, uh, one of our um, funders asked us, you know, if we could do a school-wide intervention, what would it look like? And, you know, we came up with, you know, a practice at the beginning of the day, school-wide practice over the loudspeaker, and a a practice at the end of the day, you know, just, you know, to get kids grounded when they first come into school so, you know, they can shake off some of their home environment, that stress, that trauma that they may be dealing with at home, Mm. and get them present and you know, give them access to parts of their mind that, you know, they wouldn't have access to because they were in survival mode, like Ali was talking about. Um, Then we also created an alternative to suspension room uh, or the mindful moment room that you were talking about where, you know, kids in crisis, you know, uh, they could either self-refer if they're in high school or um, in middle school and uh, elementary school, the teachers or administrators would have to refer the kids to the room. And, you know, when they are in crisis, they come down to our room and, you know, the beauty, the, the reason why teachers love this is because they don't have to deal with the behavior issues and they can go back to teaching instead of, you know, diffusing the situation, which will take away from learning time. And, you know, they'll get sent to our room. They can stay in there for like 15 to 20 minutes. We have a staff member staffing that room all during the day. And first of all, you know, when they come into the room, we empower our students by, you know, doing active listening. Uh, and mirroring, you know, and that, Mm -hmm. you know, kids never, they're always talked at, especially in school. And, you know, Mm. they never talked with or heard. And, you know, first walking into the room, you know, we're doing uh, the mirroring and repeating what the kids say. So they definitely feel heard. So, you know, it's, it builds up their, um, you know, emotions and, you know, makes them uh, more um, calm when they first Mm -hmm. come into the room. Um, Then, you know, when they get into the room, you know, we will talk to kids 
uh, about like their stress, their stressors and how the stress plays out in their body. And, you know, they'll explain, you know, what they went through in that situation. Um, you know, they'll uh, will ask, them, where did you feel that? They may squeeze their, clench their fist. Mm. They may clench their jaw. They may feel something in their stomach. And, you know, they'll go to that. And then, um, you know, afterwards, you know, we'll say, well, all right, well, next time this happens or let's do let's do this practice, whether it's a breath or a meditation, you know, where, you know, the kid will be able to calm themselves down with a specific breath where, where if they're hot headed, you know, they'll do a breath to kind of cool their mind down and make them less hot headed, um, a, a breath to kind of make them less anxious, uh, you know, different different practices that we have in their breaths that induce a state of calm. So after they finished doing that practice, you know, we asked them, all right, you all felt like this when y'all first came into the room. How do y'all feel now? And, you know, there's like five circles on like a piece of paper, whether it's angry to a happy face. And, you know, the kids always come in the room, like make a real messed up circle, circle in the angry face. And then at the <laughs> end, you know, they achieve, you know, peace and, you know, they're grounded and present after doing the practice. And then, you know, we tell them that, uh, you know, next time they get into the situation in their classroom, they we've identified who their stresses are or what their mm. stresses are. We uh, so that pay attention to when you have those around you, then you can uh, know how the stress plays out in your body. Be aware, be mindful if your fingers are clenching up, your jaw is clenched and, you know, know that the next time you get in the situation, do this breath, do this meditation right there. And then you can kind of calm yourself down. And that's empowering within itself. Oh. And um, our numbers start off really high at the beginning of the year. But you know, because kids learn know how to uh, self-regulate in their classroom, the numbers dwindle down to next to nothing. Where this, you know, this in the is school, suspensions and stuff you're talking about. Yeah, this is the referral yeah. rates to the room. Oh, okay, yeah. got it. Okay, got. It. Thank you. Yeah. Sorry. Yeah, I'm sorry. Yeah, the referral rates go way down, and you know, at in one of the schools that we were at, um, Robert W. Coleman in the epicenter of the Frederick Gray uprising. You know, for eight years we had zero suspensions, and you know, I know the first year they sent us this information. We went to uh the principal we're like yo uh ali was like i i know you're fudging the numbers you know like (laughs) like no real numbers like what the hell and she was like her and her assistant principal just bust out laughing and they said well you know um the kids uh that you know would get suspended we send them to you all and you know that kind of makes us not have to suspend anybody because when they are in crisis and or right before they're going to get into crisis we send them to you all it doesn't take away it doesn't create a big situation nobody gets hurt and you know kids get to take that 15 minutes to be able to mm-hmm. pause do that breathing practice and you know yet the, the, the we don't have any suspensions and you know the, right. i think the, another cool thing about it is each room it's not just a, a school room it's the oasis in the school where it's like a oil diffuser himalayan salt crystals oh, yeah. inspirational posters zafus like we don't have like the fluorescent lights, we have like lamps in there or yeah. natural mm-hmm. light. We have plants, we have fountains. So like, you know, the teachers even walk past the room and I just walk and just stand in there and just sniff, like inhale deep and walk <laughs> like, no, I just need this. <laughs> and then, you know, that helps them get grounded because, you know, teaching is one of the most stressful jobs. That's why oh. it's such high and uh, so high in burnout. But, you mm-hmm. know, the room helps people in so many different ways. You know, it, you know, yeah. So it, it's brought down suspension numbers brought up test scores and you know yeah just helped out the whole um school environment yeah and one quick thing about the um just one quick thing about the mindful moment program we're Mm -hmm. actually um we actually did a commitment with the clinton clinton global initiative and the clinton foundation where we're expanding to five new cities um philadelphia is going to be one of those cities i'm looking for four more um where we're going to train two people from those cities to facilitate the program in a school 
Um, we've got the Trauma Research Foundation doing a study on it to see how it affects the schools, but also the people that we train. Because one thing we've noticed is the people that we train to facilitate these programs have huge shifts happen in their life from service work and from developing their own practice. But we don't have any like concrete numbers behind it. So we're really excited about that, like expanding to five new cities and training people and then also getting some concrete numbers about the effects it's having on the kids and the adults. Heck yeah. Congratulations, man. That's, yeah, that's incredible. You. And I've got, I've got some people in Philly that uh, teach this kind of stuff already, but uh, maybe we can introduce you guys. Um, That'd be awesome. Be yeah. Before we jump yeah. into the closing practice, which I would love if one of you guys would lead the closing practice for our listeners, what's the best way for them to find out more about HLF and about you guys individually? Uh, so I'd say for HLF, just shoot us an email, um, info at hlfinc.org, or go to our website, hlfinc.org, um, follow us on social media. And I guess us personally, like a lot of the spiritual practices that we do personally, we don't, we can't do through uh, the Holistic Life Foundation uh, because yeah. we're in schools. So we started right. an organization called the Involution Group uh, where uh, we do yeah. all of our spiritual teaching through. So you can just email us at info at the involutiongroup.com or look on uh, um, our website. Um, it's just spiritualstrategicplan.com. Right on, right on. Excellent. And again, for, for those listening, your book, Let Your Light Shine, How Mindfulness Can Empower Children and Rebuild Communities, highly recommended. <laughs> yeah, everyone hold look it at up. all of us. Uh, oh, oh, come Everybody. on, Ali, you got come it. On. <laughs> Three of the four of us are holding it up. <laughs> I love it. I love it. But uh, I'll turn it over to you guys to, uh, you know, wrap it up in a bow with that with that closing practice and then we'll say goodbye. So uh, I'll, I'll let you guys flip a coin or whatever. <laughs> what you want to do, Ali? Uh, I'll, I'll lead some. All right. So um, we were talking about the light. The book's called Let Your Light Shine. So let's uh, we we're talking about experiencing it and seeing it before you can tell, see it in anybody else. So uh, let's jump into that. Uh, so go ahead and get in a comfortable meditative position. Uh, back, neck, and head align. I welcome you to close your eyes. Uh, if you're sitting on a chair, um, try to root your feet in the floor if it's accessible to you. Um, we'll start by taking a couple deep breaths in and out through our nose all the way down to our belly. So let's inhale nice and deeply. And exhale that breath out. Feeling your lungs fall, push your belly in. Inhale again deeply. And exhale it out. One more, inhale nice and deeply. And exhale it out. Uh, go ahead and relax your breath. I'll let it flow effortlessly. Just let it be. There's no right or no wrong. Just let your breath be what it is. And the first stage of uh, yoga meditation is a stage called Pratyahara, which means withdrawal of the senses. Uh, from the outside world into the light that shines within you. Uh, so we're going to start with a sense of sight since our eyes are already closed. So what you're going to do is you're going to use your imagination. You're going to see a bright white light shining in the center of your chest at heart level. As bright as you can possibly imagine it. If you're having trouble and you feel yourself looking down with your physical eyes, don't do that. You're going to have to see it with your mind's eye, your imagination. So just use your imagination to see a bright white light Shining in the center of your chest at heart level. And you have, if you're having trouble picturing that, imagine like the light on your phone, on your cell phone, a bright white light. Just imagine seeing that shining there.
Now we're going to pause sense of feel inward towards that light. Anything your body's sensing right now physically, go ahead and acknowledge it. Whether it's the temperature of the room, the position of your body, the connection to your chair, the texture of your clothes against your body. Go ahead and acknowledge all those sensations and start to pull your sense of feel inward towards that light. And what you're trying to feel is the positive energy and the vibrations that that light gives off. Uh, once you notice it, it might start feeling like a floating or swirling or fluttering feeling, or maybe even a vibrational feeling. But whatever it is, just pay attention to it and connect to it. Uh, you'll notice if you connect to it too tightly and try to grab onto it, the, the energy will kind of dissipate. So once you connect to it, very lightly and gently connect to it, and you notice the vibration will get stronger and stronger. So focus on seeing and feeling that light. And as you do, know it's your true self. Like that uh, universal spark that that's within you, that full of universal joy, universal bliss, universal power, universal love. Perfect in every single way. The last thing we do is use a sense of sound, sense of hearing. Um, we're going to use the OM mantra for that. Uh, it's a universal vibration and everything in the universe gives off. The interconnects us all. So we're going to inhale nice and deeply. And we're going to exhale with a nice, long, audible OM. OM. All right, inhale again nice and deeply. And exhale with another long, audible OM. Oh. All right, one more time out loud. Inhale nice and deeply. And exhale with another long, audible ohm. Oh. All right, now pull that ohm inward and hear it and feel the vibration of it pulsating from that light. Just mentally vibrate it, hear it inside your head, vibrating from that light. So all your awareness is going to be on seeing that light, feeling the energy, and hearing, feeling the ohm sound. And let the light of your true self shine, going as deeply inside of it as you possibly can. very very slowly and gradually bring our awareness back out from that light and back out to our physical body i want to start by very lightly wiggling our fingers and toes roll your wrist and roll your ankles a little bit move your head some from side to side and then whenever you're ready you can go ahead and slowly slowly open up your eyes that's beautiful Mm. Thank you very much. Uh, I'm pretty sure that's the first time we've done any type of ohm on, on the show. And I love the fact that we sent that out into the universe. That was that was fantastic, guys. It's been fantastic having you on. I love your book. I love what you guys are doing. Uh, congratulations on expanding and scaling HLF. Um, and you guys are putting a dent in the universe, right? Really making that impact on, on our future with, with our youth. So thank you. 
so much for being here with us today. I'll turn it over to Will to wrap it up. No, just more thanks to you gentlemen for, you know, sharing your wisdom with us today and, and, uh, and, you know, bringing these practices to kids, you know, I, I, one thing I've always felt is like, you know, we, that's what we need to start, you know, at that, at the, in our youth, you know, and we could really begin to shift the planet and make huge difference in our cultures and our lives of, you know, really accessing these practices at such a, from such a young age. So thank you guys for, for doing this work and, and we really, really appreciate your time today. And I can't, you know, anybody, I really suggest it. And I got to say this book is well-written too. It's fun. I, I mean, I was reading the last couple of chapters tonight. I just kept getting pulled in deeper and deeper and deeper as like you're telling more stories about the community and the work that you're doing. So um, thank you, gentlemen. Anything, any last parting words? Nah, thank you all. We'd love to stay connected with you all too. Um, you sure, know, like, yeah. yeah, definitely. Yeah, but yeah I'm, I'm in the city. I'm in the city, in New York City, and, and I know a lot of teachers here. So I don't know. Are you guys in the city at all? Are you doing work? In yeah, the we city come up there. We're trying yeah, to actually okay. get um, one uh, city or New York uh, as one of our cities for the Clinton Global Initiative expansion okay. program. So if you have any connections there in the school system, you know, connect I, us. I, I do, actually. And, and, you know, hey, when you guys come up here, I would love to drop in and, and, and just either witness your program or be part of your program in some way. Like I would, I just, I love what you're doing and I love teaching as well. Um, and I would just, just love to hang out with you guys and, 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 you know, shoot the shit. It would be amazing. Yeah. We will definitely all stay connected and see what we can, you know, create together or just like help each other, you know, uh, you know, just push these, move these practices deeper into our, into our communities and, and into our lives. Cause you know, we all have the same passion to really share that light. Right to find that light within by practicing on our own, but also giving that light to other people. Uh, and thank you for sharing, shining your light today. And um, I think that's it. Thank there you. There you go. There you go. And then for our audience, hey, thanks for joining us here today. We appreciate you. And if you would, give us a review and subscribe on the podcast and on YouTube. Um, and until next time, peace. Thank you, everybody. Peace, peace joining us today we hope you walk away with some new tools and insights to guide you on your life journey new episodes are being published every week so please join us again for some meaningful discussion for more information please check out mentalkingmindfulness.com